You're listening to Christ is King, all of Him in all of life, from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. This podcast is part of our ongoing mission to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. For more information, visit rivertownchurch.org. May the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Word. Good morning, church. It is good to be here to worship the Lord Jesus with you this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're beginning a new series that we have titled Christ is King. And we are going to be in this series for almost half a year. Uh, just glorying in and looking in and celebrating and bowing to, reveling in the truth that Christ is Lord in all of life. We live in a world that denies this truth at every turn. The word is clear that a fool says in his heart that there is no God. And we live in a foolish world. Secularism and secular humanism abounds in our culture. I was discussing this with the brothers. Um, my mindset was still stuck in thinking that we live in a pluralistic and just relativistic society, saying whatever's true is true for you, and whatever's true for me is true for me. And as long as your truth doesn't have any kind of binding effect on me, then I'm okay with it. We have devolved from that into a kind of new godless morality that is being pushed by social elites and secular governments that say there is a new morality that is anti-God at every turn that says the opposite of what God has revealed in his word. And if your truth now disagrees with our definitions of truth that celebrate what is evil and reject what is good, then you can be canceled. You can lose your job, and the days are coming soon where the, the punishments or the fallout will be much, much more costly. And false teachings that are anti-Christ are not new. When Paul wrote to the Colossian church, they were under attack with the false teaching of Gnosticism. The Gnostics taught that God was a fullness from which emanated lesser beings they called them aeons. They were uh, less pure than the original fullness of God, and every emanation from God created a, a less pure, more evil version of that deity, and that their way of explaining sin and suffering in the world was that one of these lesser beings created the world, and that because of that, the material world was evil. They also taught that Christ was merely one of these imperfect aeons, one of these imperfect emanations from this pure fullness or this pure essence of deity. And there is a, a new kind of Gnosticism today that threatens the church just like it did in their day where we we are prone to the danger of relegating Christ to what we would deem spiritual and not let him, not give him the honor and the glory and the place that he deserves in all of life, in all of the world. So Christ is relegated to the things that we deem spiritual. If we want to honor Christ, it looks like praying, reading the Bible, witnessing. Uh, but when we talk about honoring Christ at work or in our work or in the public sphere, we, we don't know what that looks like unless we mean praying and reading my Bible on my lunch break. Um, if, and Eric was telling me the other day, we've kind of fallen into the danger that there's like neutral space out there where it's just sort of a free-for-all, whether Christ is honored or not. He's just, we shouldn't plan on him being honored in the world, but as long as we honor him in our personal lives and we seek to win people spiritually, then that will kind of all take care of itself. And when we do that, we end up putting Christ into a private world, a private life, and he doesn't receive the honor and the glory that he is due in all of life. 
I, th- I think about it this way. John the Baptist stood for righteousness. He proclaimed righteousness. Jesus said he was the greatest preacher born of a woman, and he got his head removed from his body, not because he was standing for the gospel, but because he was standing for what was righteous, for what God had said. And people now would look at him and be like, John, you could have had a longer ministry. You could have survived longer if you hadn't have just taken that stand so publicly or hadn't proclaimed truth to that king. And he could have had a a better private ministry. He could have won more souls. But he stood for Christ and proclaimed truth when it was being challenged because all of life belongs to him. All truth belongs to him. All righteousness belongs to him, and it matters. And so our chief aim in this series is to exalt Christ as Lord in all of life, praying and working for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That For that to be true, for his lordship to be recognized in every part of our life individually, in our homes, in our church, in our places of work, in our government, and in the culture as his life reigns in us. This is what Paul writes to the Colossians. It's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. And we're going to get into this more in this text. But God wants to fill the earth with the fullness of Christ through you, his people. So in this letter to the Colossians, into the onslaught of this false teaching of Gnosticism, that the enemy created to lead the church away from Christ, Paul proclaims who Jesus is and what he's done for us in the gospel and then how we as believers should live in light of who he is. So with that, let's open God's word in Colossians chapter 1. So Paul has never met this church, and this is a small-town church, which I think is neat because here we are in small-town church Uh, that's being threatened by false teaching, and we've got false teaching around us at every turn. And Paul has never met them, uh, but this church was planted by one of Paul's mentees, and he's heard of their faith and of the way that the gospel has been at work among them. And so he has just finished offering this prayer for them that they would grow in Christ and grow in knowledge and understanding of him and walk in a manner worthy of him. In verse 12, he says, that we as believers should give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want to pray before we dive in, but I want you to see I was delighted to discover this, um, that the Holy Spirit, when he inspired this text, structured all of this in the form of a chiasmus or a chiasm. I'm not going to nerd out on you. Abby's smiling. Um, But I do want you to see this because this is stylistically beautiful, but also very helpful. Um, I'm not going to dive into the technical details, but basically, in layman's terms, this text is like a mountain. And it goes up one side and down the other, and the elevation at each place has a corresponding truth. So I I color-coded this, the idea is, the arguments go up and then they match on the way back down and everything points to in Jesus, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, his church. He is preeminent in everything. He's preeminent in creation and he's preeminent in redemption. He's the head of all things in creation and he's the head of all things in the new creation. So that is 
where we're going, and we're going to take these truths. So you don't have to remember that. If you, that went, just let it stay there, and we're going to dive in together. Um, but we're going to take these truths together as we walk through this text. And deep study that reveals things like the structure of a text aren't meant to stroke our intellects, but stir our hearts. That God's word is perfect and beautiful, and we can turn this text like a diamond and see a new facet of who God is and who Christ is, and it's truth not just to be analyzed, but to be gloried in, because it reveals the person of Jesus. So let's pray and ask God to, for our hearts to burn with wonder and worship this morning. There's going to be a lot that you hear today that you have heard before. So what's it for? Is not God's word living and active? Is when Jesus reveals himself to his people, do not our heart burn within us when he opens his word to us? But we have desperate need of his spirit to come and to do that. So that this is not just, oh, I've heard this and we have this stoic practice of wanting to hear something new. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. And we want to praise you more. We want to see you with all of our hearts. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. You would open every door of every part of our life. That you would come and invade and have your rightful place in all of us, in all of our life. Lord, would you um, be with our brothers and sisters who are sick and who couldn't join us today or who um, are not here for whatever reason. Uh, Lord, I pray that they would hear this message and that you would speak to them and bless them. Lord, awaken us to your truth and to your goodness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to take these truths about Jesus in turn and help break them down. And depending on your background and whether or not you grew up hearing these truths or not, uh, it may be harder for you to believe that Jesus is God. You hear majestic claims about Christ as God, and you find those to be just out there, and you have to work to glory in. I grew up believing that Jesus is God, having heard it from my parents all through. So when I read things like Jesus is the image of the invisible God, I say, yes, this is amazing. And I have believed this my whole life. But what's astonishing to me is that the same God became a man. So it's both realities. I want you to hold both in, in your heart as we glory in this so that you remember that this same God that we are looking at who is the image of the invisible God is the God who became a man so that you could forever be with him as God. So truth number one about this Christ, he is the image of God and the fullness of God dwells in him. The Lord Jesus was in the beginning with God as the word of God. He is the logos of God. We've heard David preach on this much that he is the one who goes forth from the Father to perfectly express who the Father is and what he is like. There is no part of the Father left unexpressed or unrevealed by the Son. They share the exact same essence and nature. Jesus is not a lesser deity than the Father. He's not a created deity. This was a heresy that has tried to attack the church all through since Jesus came. Was that Jesus is a created being or he's a lesser God or if the Jehovah's Witnesses would say he's a God. But to quote the Nicene Creed, which was written in response to Arianism to, to label it heresy, the Nicene Creed says he's very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That's, that is what is in view here, that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the fullness of God in bodily form. In verse 17, Paul says, he is before all things, which means Jesus existed before everything was made with the Father. He's not the first among God's creation. He's first 
over God's creation. He was in the beginning with God. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. In his incarnation, Paul says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. That's not that the fullness of God used to dwell in him, but that when he came and in the work of redemption, all of God's fullness dwelt in Christ. Yes, he emptied himself of his rights and his claims to his own authority, like Paul writes about in Philippians 2. But all the fullness of God always dwelt in bodily form in Christ. This is contrary to the Gnostic claim of the day that there was, there was this fullness outside of Christ and that Christ was the emanation of the fullness. And Paul is saying, no, Christ is the fullness of God. He is the exact image of God. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It means that Jesus shines forth from the Father and shows us exactly what the Father is like. So that if you want to know what God is like, you can look at Jesus. Jesus perfectly displays the holiness of God and the love of God and the glory of God and the worth of God and the righteousness of God and the strength of God. Everything that you need to know about God has been expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In John 14, after Jesus has finished saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, Philip's response is, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So this is so important. This is not some modalistic statement that says the Father became the Son who became the Spirit. There are three persons and one God And Jesus is the express image of his nature, him and the Father and the Father in him, so that we can know exactly who God is and what he's like in the person of Christ. He is the image of God. But next in the verse, he says that he is the firstborn of all creation, which points to his preeminence in all things. The firstborn was a term that was used usually for the firstborn male of a family. And because of his elevated status and honor and rank in the family, it's a term that came to be used figuratively to refer to something being first or preeminent, which is how it's used here. In verse 15, Paul's not saying that Jesus had a beginning as if he was not born and then became born, that he was a firstborn of God in the sense that he didn't exist, and all of a sudden he was, which is how it is misread and used to work into a lot of different cults, a lot of different false teaching about who Christ is. What Paul is saying is that he is supreme over all of creation. He has the highest rank in value, in authority, in worth. Jesus is the highest one. In Psalm 89 which written by a psalmist named Ethan, is where uh, our son's name came from. The psalmist is singing, declaring of the promised son of David. And in verse 27, he's prophesying from the Lord, God will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So there's your working definition of what it means to be the firstborn over all creation. In Psalm 89, verse 27, he's saying, look, the firstborn is the highest of the kings of the earth. And that word highest is El Yon. He's saying, look, this is the most high. This is the same God most high that Melchizedek comes and blesses Abraham. And he says, blessed is Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So when he says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, it is, he is the highest one. He's the king over all creation. He is God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And over and over in this passage, you're going to see all things, all things, all creation and everything, all things, all things, because everything is 
under Christ as the preeminent one. And we can only relate to all things so long as we see them in relation to Christ. He is preeminent over all of his creation as the firstborn. And he is the firstborn by virtue of the fact that he is the creator of all things, which is what we see in verse 16. So he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Why? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In verse 18, he says he is the beginning. There's this corresponding truth in verse 18. Again, not saying that he is the beginning of creation, but that he is the beginning over creation. It's this word that means he is the source. He is, despite what the Gnostics said, that there was some source outside of him and he was some lesser emanation. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Christ is the source. He is the beginning. Everything that has been made found its beginning in him. In John chapter 1, verse 3, we read that all things were made through Christ, the Word. And without him was not anything made that was made. So don't miss this in this verse. This, these three different ways that creation relates to him. It says that the Father created all things in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. This, this, is, this language, it says, by him all things were created. But you'll see in your Bible, there's a little number there. Because people don't know how to translate for in him all things were created. It doesn't seem to make sense. And it can mean in, by, with. So how, how do we translate this? But that everything was created in Christ. It means that he is over and above and outside of creation. And that you can only relate to anything that's been made so far as you see it in relation to him. Everything is created inside of him and relates to him. And he is the preeminent one over all that he has made. Paul is saying Jesus is the source of the universe and the point of it. He, he is the beginning and he is the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one through whom everything was made and everything exists to display. The way I would say it to a kid, which I think is helpful for all of us, everything exists to display how awesome he is. That's why you exist. That's why everything exists. That's why Paul includes every single created thing in heaven and on earth, meaning from heaven to the earth, everywhere in between, every single created thing exists through Jesus and for Jesus. The most powerful seraphim that if you saw, you would bow down to as God because of how holy and beautiful and pure and righteous they are. They cover their face and can't even look at God because they were created through him and for him. And Paul goes all the way in the other direction where you would say, surely not. Thrones, dominions, authorities, all these things that refer to demonic powers. That, again, in the Colossians day, these, these beings that they feared, the ones that had power over the material world, and the material world was seen as evil because of these lesser emanations from God. And Paul's saying, all powers, angelic beings, beings that fell away from God and now have rule and authority and power in the world as demonic forces. All things were created through him and for him. So I did a little research because I think sometimes we can read this and we can be like, wow, that's big. That's crazy. And then kind of move on. So God's word says that the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above the work of his hands. I looked up space.com. You can, you can go f look at it and see if it's a legit site. I've, I thought space.com sounds pretty official. I mean, if I was going to make a website about space, it seems like a good starting point. And, uh, but they say, look, in the observable universe, like we know that there's two and a half trillion galaxies. But he says some scientists say that there could be like multiverses no, I'm reading this. I'm like, boy, the Spider-Man was right. And like, this is, there could be universes inside the universe. And 
we don't know because the universe is always expanding. But this guy who's a professor, I think in Ithaca, New York, said it's probably an underestimation, underestimation, to say that there are 10 trillion galaxies with an average of 100 billion stars. So good luck processing that. That's called a septillion. That's a trillion trillion. If, and if you're not a numbers person, I thought this would help. Okay, so that's, that's a one with 24 zeros after it. And if you were to count one star per second, it would take you over a billion years to count them. So if you, if you were to count one second, one million seconds gets you to about 11 days. A billion seconds gets you to about 32 years. And a trillion seconds is about 32,000 years. We're talking about a trillion trillion. So I just did the math. 32,000 times 32,000. It'd take you a billion years to count one per second. And Isaiah 40 says, because of the greatness of Jesus' might and the breadth of his power, not one of them is missing. He leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. This God is huge. And all of that was created through Jesus and for Jesus. He's still creating them. Like while, while you had a busy day and you were working, Jesus is breathing out stars at the edge of the universe that nobody will ever discover because he's worthy and because he can to display the greatness of his glory. The National Ocean Service estimates there to be almost 333 million cubic miles of water in the ocean. 333 million cubic miles. So cube a mile, 333 million of those. And every single inch and all it contains was created through Jesus and for Jesus. I tried to find estimates for people uh, that have ever existed on the earth. And the estimates that I found said maybe 100 billion people, maybe just north of 100 billion people that have ever existed on the earth. I don't know how many have ever existed, but every single one of them was created through Jesus and existed for the glory of Jesus. Before you were ever conceived in your mother's womb, he numbered your days. He knows your thoughts, numbers your hairs, upholds your life. Your life is a gift from Jesus and exists for the glory of Christ. Your marriage was created through Jesus and exists for Jesus. Your children were created through Jesus and they exist for the display of his glory. Your work was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Your time, all of it, was created through Jesus and it exists for Jesus. Your waking moments, your sleep moments, your downtime, the time that you feel like you just need to take to yourself to catch a breath, all of that is a gift from Jesus. He created it and it exists for him. The work that he's given you to do at home and in the workplace exists to display the glory of Christ. Your neighbors, your co-workers, all of Vermont, all of New England, all the nations, everything that has breath and every inanimate object was created through Jesus and exists for the glory of Jesus. Money, every cent exists through Jesus and for Jesus. Sex and sexuality, the two genders, authority, culture, peoples, languages, governments, kings and kingdoms, all of it exists through Jesus and for him. If you can think of it, it is part of the all things that he created and that exists through him and for him, that he is preeminent over as the firstborn over all of creation. And he created, that he created all things speaks not just to his greatness and to his authority, but to his glory and his worth. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, that Jesus is glorious in the way that a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now, he's referring to Moses, but the principle is true. Anything in your life that you view to be beautiful or glorious or impressive was created by him and has its relation to him. You can't understand anything in the world apart from him. And so in Revelation chapter 4, we see this song where all of us will sing to the resurrected Christ, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? 
For you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. And I want you to miss that because that ties back to what this correlating truth in Colossians. By your will, they existed. So it's not just that he created all things and then let them go. Paul is clear in Colossians, and then we see it repeated in the song in Revelation. By your will, they existed. By his will, all things continue to exist. He upholds all things, Hebrew says, by the word of his power. The way that Paul phrases it in our text is, in him, all things hold together. He is actively sustaining your life. He's giving you your next breath and your next breath. He's giving your children their breath. He's giving you your job. He's giving you, without Jesus upholding it, none of the uh, electrons circle the nucleus anymore. Anywhere. Everything all falls apart unless he is actively holding it all together. In Job 34, verse 14, 15, Job writes, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So Jesus is preeminent as the creator and as the sustainer of all things. All things exist through him and for him. He is the Lord over every part of life. Everywhere that you go in your life, Jesus is the king. Every person that you meet in all of your life, Jesus is the Lord of their life, whether they recognize it or not. He created them and they exist for him. He made them to know and to worship and to honor him. And they are accountable to him and to his law and to his moral requirements as the creator as the one who upholds their life. And so we get to Christ's preeminence in redemption. Because though he made us to know and to worship him and to reflect his glory in the world, mankind turned away from him and rejected Christ and his rule. Babel was a perfect illustration of where mankind continuously comes to, where they say, we'll reach the heavens, or how Eric read it earlier from Psalm 2, let's throw off his bonds from us. We will have no king but Caesar. You can fill in the blank anything that would express, I am my own authority. I reject any claims to truth or authority outside of myself. I have my truth. I will be God. This is all, all ties back to when sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve. We see that God created mankind to live in his image. But instead of choosing to know him and worship him and enjoy him and to reflect his image in the world, man rejected this preeminent God's authority and the whole creation was subjected to decay and to death. All of their children, all of us were born slaves of our sinful desires. God's word says that we are born dead in our trespasses and sin and are by nature children deserving of the wrath of God. Born children of the devil, created to worship and to know and to live with in communion with this preeminent Christ, and born choosing and rejecting, choosing ourselves and rejecting him, held captive by the devil to do his will, and becoming truly deserving of the judgment of this Christ. And we all inherently know that. That is why the world, though it knew that there is a God, rejects the truth and suppresses the truth and unrighteousness because we don't want to be accountable to any God. So the easiest way to do away with the judgment of God is to do away with God himself and to be further given over to a depravity that runs from God and chooses ourselves and our sinful desires and and moves into a place where we see today all over where there's a celebration of evil, not just a tolerance of it. And into the darkness, into this domain of darkness that all of us are born into, this Christ came. 
the maker of all, preeminent over all, humbled himself and took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man so that he could become the servant of all and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see an even greater glory, not just his glory as the creator, but his glory in his love and in his mercy in that he would come and humble himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Paul writes about at the beginning of our text. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul doesn't include in this Christology the the fallout and how we fell away into sin, but he already wrote to the Colossians, the gospel has come to you just as it has borne fruit in all the world. But this forgiveness of sins, this redemption, it's, it's telling this part of the story that, yes, Christ is preeminent over all things, but what's not included in this description of Christ is that we rejected this Christ and went our own way, but he came for us into the darkness to deliver us out and to, to bring us to himself. This word for deliverance, the, the language here echoes the language of uh, God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of their slavery in Exodus chapter 6 and then again out of their exile in Psalm 107. It's full of the language of he's delivered us, he's redeemed us, he's done it by the blood of the Lamb. And given us forgiveness and brought us into the kingdom of his inheritance. But the language is explicitly not just deliverance from something, but snatching us out of the danger, out of the darkness to himself. He, he came to deliver us out of the domain of darkness, not, not just to bring us out, not just to give us the forgiveness of sins and to leave us. He did it to transfer us into the kingdom of this preeminent Christ to bring us to himself so that where he is, we might be also, to rejoice in him with the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And he has done it. Look at the past tense here. That want believers to rejoice in this, that if you are in Christ, it says that he has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is not a pending transfer. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have it. It belongs to you. He gave it to you. Why? Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. So, we see in the, the tenses of this passage, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. But when we're talking about what he has done, it is finished. It is all past tense. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And through him, he is reconciling to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, in verse sorry, 18, it says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And here's, here's the firstborn correlating to the first firstborn that we saw back in verse 15. Christ is the firstborn over the creation. Yes, verse 15, but he's also the firstborn of the new creation. He is the firstborn from the dead, and that is speaking to not just the fact that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first among many brothers to rise from the dead. But this is not talking just about the timing of his resurrection, but his preeminence over the new creation and what he's doing. He is the firstborn from the dead, risen as the highest of the kings of the earth. The grave could not keep him. It couldn't hold God most high. And so he went into the grave as the firstborn of creation and he busted forth from the grave as the firstborn of the new creation. And now he is making all things new and winning the world back to himself. This creator God 
would not allow our rebellion to be the end of the story. He came into the world to win us back to himself. I was reading in Jonah the other day, and I cannot believe that God would let a city, a people be so wicked and then send a prophet to see their rescue. And he describes himself, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I will by no means clear the guilty. And we see that as the description that God gives of himself more often than any other description. He is merciful. He is gracious. And he will by no means clear the guilty. And so he has to judge the world in righteousness. And the only way for him to showcase his mercy and his love and his forgiveness was to send his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but has eternal life. I need to be done. I've got to fast forward to the last point. Five, he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus rose from the dead as the head of a new humanity. And now he is redeeming people out of their sin and bringing them in to a people, a family that he is making new and redeeming for himself. And he is restoring what we lost at the fall where we were created in the image of God and that image was marred by sin. Now Christ has come to live and reign in his people as their head and we are being conformed to the image of Christ as a new people so that we would again reflect God's image in the world. He is the head of the church and he is the head of this church. He is the Lord of our collective life together. He's our authority and he's our life. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes it this way. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How does Christ fill all in all through the church? If you, if you look at it, it doesn't seem to make sense on the surface. It says that the body of Christ is the fullness of God. In what way is the body of Christ the fullness of Christ? Well, in the same way that the fullness of God dwelt in Christ, the image of God, so now Christ dwells in his people. And he is conforming us to his image so that as his people fill the earth, they're fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with disciples, we reflect the image of God everywhere as we're being conformed to the image of Christ. So what do we do with this truth? One, we, we wonder and we worship. But Paul exhorts the Colossians in verse 21. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I Paul became a minister so what do we do well first we continue in trusting him stable and steadfast we know that the reason why he redeemed us was so that we would be a holy people. And so we press on to know him and to be conformed into the image of Christ in us. Paul writes later, it's, it's Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. And so we press on to know him and to enjoy him and to obey him in all of life. And we allow his sanctifying work. We surrender to him and, and how he sanctifies us by the word of truth. And we continue in the faith. Verse 20, um, sorry, 2, verse 28, we proclaim him. Paul has just finished saying Christ is preeminent over everything and over everyone you know. And because he's preeminent eight times over all things, all things, all things, all things, then in verse 28, he says, we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We have obligation and responsibility to proclaim Christ 
and to teach Christ to everyone, whether it's warning or whether it's teaching or whether it's presenting them mature and working towards their maturity in Christ, Christ has bearing on everyone. And so we proclaim him, everyone, in all of life. And the third application point, I would just ask you, what in your life does not demonstrate that Christ is preeminent in all things? What, what in your life does not tell the truth that this exists through Jesus and for Jesus? That Christ is having his way in your life where everything that you do is do, being done to display his glory and his worth. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, in all things, we do it for the glory of Christ. Like I said, we're going to spend the first half of this year glorying in and bringing our lives into subjection to Jesus' preeminence in us individually, in us as a church, in our workplace, in culture, in government. How do we live as followers of the Christ who is preeminent so that we proclaim him and live obediently to him in all of life. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to come to the table now. If you missed last week, I encourage you uh, to listen to the message um, or watch it. We are moving as a church to celebrate the Lord's table every week so that we proclaim the death of Christ and remember him and his gospel and what he's done for us until he comes. And so we have these elements here, his body, the bread broken for us and his blood, the new covenant, his blood poured out for us on the right. We've got on my right, this is the juice here for any that um, for convictional reasons or any other reason need to abstain from alcohol. But Eric talked about last week how this is symbolic of this diluted wine and the, the water and the blood that poured out from Christ and how there's joy and gladness because of him atoning for our guilt and removing our sins from us. But there's also the bite and the sting of remembering the wrath that he bore in our place. And so we come here to remember and to worship. And I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read the portion after um, the part that is normally quoted when we're taking the elements, where Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church because people are coming to the table in an unworthy manner. They're coming disunified with each other. So Jesus says, if you know that you have a, a brother has something against you or you have something against a brother or sister, go to them and then come to the altar and make your sacrifice. So this table confronts us. It confronts us from the past week and say, Lord, is there any part of my life that has been unyielded to your lordship? But there's also this place where we have this assurance of pardon that if we come repentant to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who dr eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not the world. And so this table serves as opportunity for the Lord to search us and try us, to discipline us prior to coming to the table so that we're not coming in an unworthy manner, rejoicing in and loving something that Christ has forbidden us from more than him. And so I want to give you opportunity um, before we come and grab the elements, and we're going to take these together. So come and grab um, a piece of the bread and uh, the cup and take it back to your seat. We're going to take it together. Uh, 
this meal is for those who have identified with Christ in baptism. So we believe baptism is this picture of appealing to God for a clean conscience, but it symbolizes death with Christ and union with him. And it's the first step into joining the church and declaring to God and to the church that we belong to Christ. And so this meal is for those who have been joined to Christ in believer's baptism. Um, So I want to invite you um, in your seat to examine ourselves and pray and ask these questions. God, where in my life has Christ not had the preeminence? And let's have him search and try our hearts and then with joy and the assurance of pardon, come and grab these elements and let's take them together. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, no one can fathom your worth or the glory that is due you. We sing, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You are good and perfect in all that you do. You are kind in all of your works. Lord The desire of our hearts is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, pleasing to you in every respect. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and search our hearts and try us of where we have sin in our lives that we've not repented of or that we've not confessed to you, relationships where there's, uh, where we haven't made peace, people that we've not forgiven and extended the forgiveness that we've received in you. God, would you search us and see if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, lead us to repentance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.